Hello, I'm David Mosscrow. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. In the United States, the United Kingdom, and around the world, protesters are defacing and toppling statues of figures whose legacy of deeds include oppression, violence, and death. While these monuments purport to celebrate these individuals for other reasons, the mere presence of such tributes speaks to a particular construction and understanding of history. In Canada, John A. Macdonald has been the focus of those who point out that his role in Indigenous genocide renders him unfit for monumental veneration. Those who come to the First Prime Minister's defense argue we shouldn't quote-unquote erase history. But whose history would that be? And, moreover, as we ask today, can history be erased? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Jim Daschuk, historian, assistant professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Health Studies at the University of Regina, and author of Clearing the Plains, Disease, Politics of Starvation, and the Loss of Aboriginal Life. Let's start by trying to understand what it is we're talking about here, because everybody thinks they know what history, quote-unquote, is, but I'm not convinced we're all talking about the same thing. So, what is history, and should we consider statues to be a part of it? Well, hi, David. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I actually don't think that statues are history, or if, if you consider them history, they are pretty um, pretty simplistic history. We have a, a, a statue of, of Johnny McDonald here in Regina in Victoria Park, appropriately named Victoria Park, and really what it's says is John A. Macdonald, Prime Minister, like first Prime Minister of Canada, and his uh, and his you know like his lifespan. That's not really much of a history lesson, <laughs> is it? Well, it's nothing you couldn't get from Wikipedia. I'll quote one of my colleagues here at University of Regina, who's probably smarter than me. David Garneau is a is a Métis fine arts professor, and and what his view of uh, of statues is, it's statues are a way for one generation to impose their vision of the world. On future generations. So if you just want to lay something down and impose that, you know, to, to generations 100 years into the future, that's the way to do it. And really, that's, that's the way I think of, of statues, you know, like, um, to many of us, they're white noise, you know, pigeons hang out on them, do whatever. Um, but for a lot of people, they are a constant reminder of their subjugation. I mean, that's what's going on in the States. Uh, in Regina, like, we're, you know, the 24th of June right now, just in the last couple of days, there have been Indigenous protests asking um, City Hall in Regina to, to take down the statue because it's hurtful. Yeah, I mean, when, I, when I think of history, I think of a sort of critical and contextual understanding of the past and how it intersects with and informs the present and, and perhaps even the future. I mean, it's, it's contextual, it's layered, it's critical. To me, statues are ornaments. Uh, I don't... And it strikes me as as being an important point to, to note, as you have, that for some people, it's very different to look at a statue than others. And it seems to me like it's an extraordinary privilege to be able to walk through the world and not be upset by statues because you've got no reason to be upset by these people because they, right, until you reflect on it or perhaps even talk to someone who says, well, let me tell you about what the legacy of this person is from my perspective. Yeah, because their legacy contributed to our privilege. So we don't have to worry about it. It's kind of like in my, I, I, I teach 130 first years and, and we talk about race. I teach in kinesiology and health studies. And, and there are times that we talk about race and, and racism. And often I'll ask them, like, what's, like, think about your ethnicity. I don't ask them to lift up their hands, you know, to, 
<laughs> about what their ethnicity is. But there are a lot of students who say, I don't really have an ethnicity. Like I'm totally generic Canadian. But if you're totally generic Canadian, if that's your, your vision of yourself, you are undoubtedly white, right? Right. So uh, that's that. So those, you know, those, I guess those problematic figures that are represented with statues created that, uh, that, you know, like their legacy is the social relations we're still living in, right? Like we're dealing with, with the Black Lives Matter, we're dealing with indigenous issues, like you name it. I've seen, I mean, just recently, Ken Burns came out and said that the, the Confederate monuments in the United States should go. And he noted that they were celebrating a false narrative about the Civil War. And that to me reveals another side of, of what statues might do. I mean, they, they, they commemorate and venerate, but they also potentially warp history, right? I mean, yeah. in fact, to some extent, is there a risk then maybe that they even work against an understanding of history? Well, you know, a lot of people, and I've actually heard of uh, uh, Premier Kenny in, in uh, Alberta a couple years ago when there was talk about taking the statues down. He said, well, you can't whitewash history and this is historical vandalism. But if you think about those representation of, of problematic figures, let's say Confederate generals or McDonald or uh, Amherst or Cornwallis or, or, or those kind of folks that, that we know, you know, kind of the full picture these days, uh, those, that's the whitewash, if you want to think about it. Right. What a lot of us as professional historians are doing is, is trying to, trying to uh, shed light on a more sophisticated history. And it's not necessarily all negative. It's just that's, you know, what people have, uh, have been interested in. So say for Canadian history, I don't know how many times I've heard the fact, you know, Canadian history is so boring. Well, the reason why it's so boring or has been so boring is because it was a whitewashed version and didn't deal basically with those injustices and, uh, and you know, those, those real issues that uh, we're still living with today. Chase that point a little bit. It's slightly off topic, but but yeah, you sparked an interest here. No, because no, no. I mean, I, I you you've sparked an interest. I love this is my favorite part of this is that when when something uh, knocks me off topic, it invariably leads somewhere interesting. You know, it seems to me that in Canada, at least in the you know in the history that that I've read, and this is largely popular historical works, some historical stuff from from scholars, but I, I think of countries like the United States where there is a vibrant people's history, literature and movement. And I wonder to what extent that exists in Canada, because I think for instance, that maybe Ian McKay and his history of the left, I'm trying to think of other examples where we have a robust people's history that would dig critically into some of this stuff. And, and I don't, nothing really comes to mind. Well, there, I'm sure there is a literature. Like, I mean, there's a, there's a, a strong women's history movement uh, you know, there are, there are uh, a whole bunch of different, uh, I guess, historical veins that people have mined. Um, uh, ethnic history was, was very big. I was just talking to, uh, to a young student about uh, how ethnic history, the history of, of certain ethnic groups and their experience as they came to Canada and what happened to them as they came to Canada, uh, really was a tie back probably in the 1970s and 1980s. And, you know, it's receded. But I think one of the things maybe that you haven't not not necessarily you personally, but but we as historians haven't necessarily done a very good job of getting our research to a public audience. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, the way the universities are set up, you get tenure, you know, which is uh, and promotion for publishing in scholarly journals. Well, those scholarly journals have a minuscule readership, like it's other professional historians. So uh, 
uh, you know, like we are supported by the state. We're, you know, we're funded. Our, 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 uh, our wages come from ultimately from tax dollars. So I think, uh, you know, as historians, we have a um, responsibility to share our knowledge with the public. And, um, you know, not all, not all my colleagues do. I, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, this is a problem in political science to some extent, too. And, and some excel at, at the public's role and, and, and others shun it. But and I don't think everybody needs to do it all the time. But we would be well served by the class of political scientists, historians, and so on with robust public engagement. And I think of, you know, Howard Zinn, for instance, and what the equivalent in Canada would be. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many books about Johnny McDonald that I, that I would see if I walk into, or you would know as well as anybody, if you walk into a mainstream bookstore. Uh, you know, to some extent, I think if we're concerned about preserving history, shouldn't we be concerned about uh, people's history populating the shelves of these bookstores as much as the dozen biographies of Johnny McDonald and so on and so forth? So, I mean, I wonder to what extent you know, there's a hypocrisy that gets exposed here. The same folks who are railing against statues being torn down, I don't hear them railing against a lack of accessible public history texts Yeah, that tell our stories. Yeah, for sure. I, I remember it's probably about maybe 15 or 20 years ago, there's a senior Canadian historian, Jack Ranestein. Uh, I'm not sure if he's retired yet. He, he went on to the, uh, the, the, um, the Canadian War Museum. He wrote a book called Who Killed Canadian History? Mm -hmm. And what he was doing was he was lamenting the fact that we didn't have a common narrative, uh, you know, common historical narrative in Canada, precisely because things were so broken down into labor history, ethnic history, women's history, indigenous history, and, you know, like, and and so on and so on. And what he was, you know, what he was uh, calling out for, and he didn't actually get much of a, much of a response was we no longer have one single story because all of our experiences are different. And what we've got to do, like, you know, what we as historians are doing is trying to, to uh, give a voice to those many different experiences. While that seems, sharing, you know, while we share the umbrella of Canada or whatever it might be. That seems exactly the right thing to do to me that, you know, if we were really concerned about history and understanding this country, what has created it and, and where we might head, what we ought to be doing is putting our work into making sure that all stories are told, especially marginalized stories that have been ignored or suppressed or, or warped. And, and I, you know, you don't see that in statues, right? I yeah, mean, exa yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's, that's part of the pushback with the defenders of statues is, uh, you know, the, the people who are asking, and I'm not necessarily advocating that statues be taken down, but we have to get into that. Uh, what, what the problem is, is that they're, identity their you know like things they hold dear their truths that they hold dear sound like an american uh <laughs> are being challenged and so say with mcdonald we we have this image of canada being a decent country and you know like running on humane principles well you know what we haven't always been and for you know certain uh of the population it still isn't yeah and, and i think this brings me to the question of, of what we do. So, so more broadly speaking, it makes sense to me that if we're concerned about history, then we ought to be concerned with educating folks about the entire history, people's history, marginalized history, both in school and then providing the opportunities to learn outside of it. But, but zeroing back in on the, on the statues, I'm all, I'm all for pulling them down. But that issue aside, what do we do with them next? It seems to me that a statue in context, for instance, in a museum, 
is much more historically valuable than something that's getting pissed on by pigeons. Yeah, a couple of things. Okay, so those statues, if if our social issues, say, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter, Indigenous Lives Matter, if those issues were resolved somehow, right? Like, you know, magic potion, whatever it might be. If, if those social inequities were resolved, the statues wouldn't be a, a point of, uh, of, of conflict, right? Like there wouldn't be a point of friction because we'd be okay with it. Like it, they would actually be historical figures that were only relevant in the past. So one possibility for sure is, is contextualizing those problematic uh, representations in a museum. Totally, like I'm, I'm totally okay with that. Uh, Senator Murray Sinclair, in the, I guess it was in the aftermath of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, it was back in 2015. What he proposed was, don't take anything down. Why not build sort of representation monuments, uh, you know, like uh, memorials to other figures who represent the other side of that story? So here in Regina, and uh, like I said, we've got the the last surviving Johnny McDonald statue in Western Canada, like I said, in Victoria Park. It's in kind of a, a special place. There's a, there's a fence around it. And one of the things I proposed is in keeping with um, the Truth and Reconciliation calls to action, every provincial capital has been called to, to establish a memorial to the children who experienced residential schools. So Regina, uh, just outside of town, actually like a kilometer or two outside of town, I think the town is actually encroaching on it, had the Regina Indian Industrial School. So we had a, a residential school, literally, in our backyards. So what I propose to people, rather than taking the statue down, why don't we put the memorial to the residential school children in that space in, the, in uh, Victoria Park? You know, like in an equal setting, where, the, where potentially the kid, if it's a representation of a child, is looking at McDonald's, McDonald's is looking at the kid. That might actually cause more <laughs> dissonance than taking than moving the statue to a museum or something like that. But I mean, there's, you know, maybe we need to build monuments to those other stories. I wonder, you know, I, I'm thinking back, I don't remember the exact reference, but I remember reading about someone saying, look, I mean, when I go to a courthouse, I have to pass a statue of X. Yeah. And, and, you know, and here was X's effect on my family, my people, whatever it might have been. I, I can't remember specifically the context, but... It, well, Victoria went through that a couple of years ago. That's eh? Maybe that's what it was. Maybe that's yep. what it was. So but, the, but I'm thinking about that in the context of saying, you know, if, if the idea is that in public, public is a place where we can we all know. be, and if we're going to, in, you know, engage with public institutions like police stations and courthouses and legislatures, then if some folks have to walk by those who, say, participated in enslavement or genocide... They say, I can't be an equal citizen if I have to go through this process and, and should I, you know, why should I have to do that? And I wonder how we, re we, we deal with that. Yeah, well, I mean, if you can't, if we can't deal with those representations that are harmful, like let's say, and I can't remember what state it was, but there was at least one legislature in, in the American South that flew a Confederate flag, you know, as part of its daily right. Uh How, like, I don't understand how an African-American could feel welcome or safe going into that, going into that legislature. It's a representation of a slave state. Right. And, and you know, and, uh, and it was a treasonous state. As somebody said, uh, um, Robert E. Lee killed more Americans than Hitler. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, if, if 
But if we can't deal with those, like, and they're symbols, like it's not even a, a sharing of wealth or power, or maybe it's a, a representation of power, but it's not even a super substantive thing. It's just, you know, they're pieces of metal or they're, or they're representations. I saw that in Mississippi, there's a call to not fly the Mississippi flag, which includes the Confederate symbol. And even the Baptists in, in Mississippi were saying as much that it's just, it's just not right. You know, 30% yeah. of the population of Mississippi is black. I mean, I don't even, I think the percentage is irrelevant. Frankly, if the symbol is there, it's the problem. But, you know, it, it strikes me as in Canada, we have to make those calls because there's also you know, there's also a matter of degree here. It's not like all figures are equally problematic. I mean, we could could have a discussion, for instance, about Tommy Douglas and eugenics, right? Um, Or uh, there there was someone in the Famous Five, I think, as well, who had come up, but I can't remember. But, you know, we could have, there's a big difference between, say, Tommy Douglas and King Leopold. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I've got a, I bought a, a, a card at, uh, I think it was the Art Gallery of Ontario. To be old and wise, you must first be young and stupid. Like, like you can, you, you know, I'm hoping that we can overcome the, the mistakes we've made as young people. Saying Douglas was a 22-year-old writing his eugenics thing. They were teaching eugenics in medical schools at that time. Right. So, like, you know, that's, uh, and then possibly, you know, Premier Douglas worked the rest of his life to overcome that, you know, maybe not necessarily directly, but... He worked all his life and became, according to CBC, the greatest Canadian, right? So, uh, you know, we probably don't want to, you know, write someone off because they made a mistake as a young person if if they changed. I don't know. Like, that's, that's kind of the way I feel. I wouldn't necessarily write off. Um, Mahatma Gandhi did something problematic as a, as a young person in South Africa, like as, as, a, as a young lawyer. Do we, do we write him off? Probably not. Well, I've seen that debate unfold about you know Gandhi and, and anti-black racism, and I, I mean, I, on this, I have very little I can say. I mean, I, I'm deferring to to racialized yeah, communities yeah, on this because I just yeah. don't know. But I mean, to me, that 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 brings up a a bigger point, which is that you know we worry about quote unquote erasing history, but it seems to me that in a world of sort of finite resources, including a, you know space on the bookshelf, statue spaces attention so on and so forth that um we have to make choices about who goes up and who doesn't who takes up the space and who doesn't it's just it's just that that proportion is utterly distorted so i mean to, so, to what extent can mainstream history even be erased I mean, it's so prevalent rather than erasing the history how about this we've got what you're calling mainstream history would be sort of the uh, you know the the uh, some of my colleagues would call it like, you know, the, the, the settler myth here in Saskatchewan, right? Like right. It's, the settlers came, they worked really hard. They, they, you know, endured all kinds of, you know, the dust bowl and the, and the, and the drought and all kinds of stuff, the great depression, but they survived and, you know, they didn't necessarily thrive, but they, they did. Okay. Like that is, that is the myth that was taught in to children in Saskatchewan, probably for 50 or 60 years. So that, and I've, I've actually spoken to think, you know, groups of seniors like the Canadian Club, and I've said, that's a legitimate story, but it's only half the story. What we got to know is the, the fact that in preparation for those settlers to come here and break the land, the Indigenous population was not only dispossessed, they were incarcerated on reserves with an illegal pass system for 70 years. That's why the social relations in the present are messed up. Right. So... 
rather than erasing history, what we're doing is we're putting flesh on the bones. I, from my perspective, anyways. And also, I mean, the other thing is, is I think it's a simple mind that assumes that history is just something that happened in the past and it's frozen as such. And it's just merely there to be communicated to the next generation rather than interpreted or, or better understood. I mean, we talk about Louis Riel very differently today than we would have 80 years ago, certainly 100 years ago, right? And, and it seems to me that if we just, if history was just about communicating the past as past generations thought it happened to present generations, well, we would think very differently of Louis Riel. And yet, you know, it's a very different figure that we meet today than, than we would have met uh, at the time of Johnny McDonald or even the time of Lester Pearson. Yeah, so, to, sure. you know, is, so I agree with you that the sort of erasing history thing seems silly, but is, you, every generation has to reinterpret its past, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, speaking as a professional historian, I have, a, I have some skin in the game. If sure. That, there would be no historians, right? Like, you know, we'd, we'd be uh, relying on something from a hundred years ago. So we're, we as historians are always doing research. We have a, you know, due diligence as professionals to represent the events that occurred as, as uh, truthfully, you know, I guess we can talk about what truth is, but sure. as, as truth, you know, to represent what, what happened to the best of our ability. We're never going to know anything. And some of us are coming at it from, you know, a left-wing perspective, a right-wing perspective, a feminist perspective, an indigenous perspective. That's, to me, that's great. Because what that does is, we each interpret those events that happened, and they're not necessarily random events, like say the 1885 resistance, like there was an outcome of that. But our, ex our experience as, as academics, as citizens, is gonna shape how we see those events, right? And that's, ultimately, that's, that's the crux of why people got problems with, those, with statues, is their experience leads them to the conclusion that those are problematic. And, you know, when when you were talking about us interpreting, I mean, it seems to me that not only are we dealing with history, we're dealing with history in the context of a democracy, which of of a supposedly free society. I mean, which is to say, history in the context of a society that has a right to choose who they venerate, right? And and I think, you know, so there's the the, the I guess there's two sides to it. There's the, or there's two facets to it. There's the factual facet that you were talking about. Okay. Here's what happened. Here's the, here are the quote unquote objective facts, but then there's the, the, the sort of meaning. Here's what that means. And it seems to me that there's a huge disconnect between those who sort of understand history monolithically as well. Here's just what happened. And those who understand it dynamically as okay, here's what happened and here's what that means. Yeah. And uh, I mean, how do we, how do we better move to a sort of robust understanding of, of history in which we engage with the what it means question as well? I think that's what we're doing. Like in one sense, uh, you know, as, as um, I wouldn't say all these discussions are troubling, but they're troubling to some people, right? Because it's challenging their, their perspective. But I think, what am I trying to say here? I think it's good that we're having this conversation at this level because it's forcing people if they're engaging in a proper dialogue with, with whoever is on the other side, it, it's forcing that conversation. And, you know, I'm hoping that it, there's an exchange of ideas and, and it's going to open people's eyes. So uh, I was just thinking about this. I think it was two years ago, there was a poll and it said 70% of Canadians, and I can't remember who did the poll. I think it was a CBC story. Okay. 70% of Canadians wanted to retain the statutes in 2018. This, you know, 
this McDonald thing has been coming and going for the last few years. Yeah. And so a reporter talked to me. He's like, who do you think about that? 70% of the people want these things to stay. I'm like, I am blown away by the fact that 30% of Canada, like one in three Canadians wants those things gone. Because if you ask that question five, 10 years earlier, it would be 95% of the people would want them to stay. So it's still a minority, but I think that's a sign that people's attitudes are changing. Not necessarily you got to deal with the statues, but I think it's a reflection of how people's ideas are changing. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, absolutely. And it's, you know, I'm, it's fascinating to me that this is also happening by way of protest and by way of direct action, right? I mean, it's history is being made at the same time as it's being challenged and expanded and criticized, I think quite rightly, but it's, it, it isn't just through seminars or through, you know, CBC series on people's history of Canada or through podcasts or it's people in the streets. And it strikes me as that's indicative of, of a deep problem, which is that power is not distributed equitably, that resources and opportunities aren't distributed equi- equitably. We're not doing enough fast enough. And so people are going into the streets and saying, well, then the statues are coming down and we're taking this into our own hands. But that, it's, but that works. I mean, I think that the secret of a lot of this stuff is that these things work because it does change minds. You know, I, I, I'm just thinking about this and I can't think of the term, okay? When, when you and I were in undergrad or in high school learning about evolution, we thought about, we were taught, you know, the Darwinian approach, very slow change over time, over millennia, over hundreds of millennia. You know what I mean? Like that slow change over time. But there's another way of looking at evolution and what it is, is it's stability, and then there's an impact. Say mm-hmm. the asteroid that took out the, the dinosaurs, right? And so there's an, a, a short, explosive, revolutionary idea, and then we get back to stability. So rather than, you know, the people's history of Canada, listening to ideas or whatever it might be, that's fine. But in the situation that we're in right now, yeah, I think we are in a time, right? Like those statues are coming down. <laughs> whether President Trump, you know, threatens people with prison time or not. So uh, sometimes it, it, it takes violent, I'm not advocating violent action, but that seems to be what's going on in, for the last month or so since the death of, of George Floyd. People are motivated, people are um, impassioned, and people are doing something about it. Yeah, and I think it's, it's you know, what, what, what I say to people is that whenever you see these you know, quote unquote, spontaneous moments, it's almost always the result of a lot of hard work and organization and capacity building and consciousness raising and, you know, the stuff that happens over the course of years. So that when, for whatever reason, opportunity to, to consolidate the movement arises, or a critical juncture emerges, or a travesty happens and people mobilize, that then is taken up by this, you know, these movements that have been working, doing the hard work of organizing and preparing and writing and thinking and connecting and so on for years. And to me, you know, what we're seeing, I think, is the the mobilization of all this capacity that's been organizing for a long time. And again, to me, that's indicative of the fact that, you know, we have structurally shut out so many people for so long, racialized folks, uh, poor folks, for instance, uh, and now that space is being taken back up. And and I think to some observers who are saying this is, you know, historical re- revisionism and, tra- you know, it's a tr- historical tragedy and so on. What they're seeing is something taken away that 
they hadn't really earned or deserved, right? This is an unearned privilege that had stacked up. And like, well, this is what egalitarianism and equity looks like. But when you're looking at it from the perspective of someone who's privileged, it looks an awful lot like exploitation. Oh, yeah, for sure. And like, uh, you know, a couple minutes ago, you mentioned democracy. Well, First Nations people weren't allowed to participate in Canadian democracy. They didn't have the right to vote until 1960. So they didn't have a democratic tradition, right? So uh, those are the kinds of things we, you know, we have to be aware of. Yeah, I want want to build very quickly on that and just sort of talk about your work and your book, Clearing the Plains. Uh, You know, to me, that tells a history that, that I don't think Canadians have, have reckoned with. I mean, to me, it seems like, you know, as much as we talk about statues, if you were to go and say to the average Canadian, okay, who's the first prime minister? And they might say, oh, Johnny McDonald. Okay, well, tell me about the clearing of the plains. <clears throat> Nothing. And I'm curious, what role do you think of, of, of adding to the historical discussion? Um, what something like clearing the plains do? What what kind of work is that doing? Well, I've been giving a lot of talks, <laughs> uh, sold a few books. Like I've I've been trying to get the word out, and I purposely wrote clearing the plains with a view to make it as accessible as possible. So there's no jargon in there. In fact, the word colonialism doesn't even appear in the index, right? So I just told the story, and I had the uh, the privilege a couple years ago to speak to the Standing Committee on Aboriginal Affairs, the Senate Committee on Aboriginal Affairs. And um, I spoke for a little while, and uh, one of my colleagues spoke. And there was a young senator, a, a young, youngish man, like probably in his 50s, but as a senator, I guess pretty young, undoubtedly a conservative. And he told me, I hated every word you said. Okay? So I'm like, ready for action? He said, but I accept every word you said. So by telling the story, I guess in the way that I did, without labeling things, it possibly made things more accessible to people who wouldn't necessarily uh, want to read it if it said something about colonialism or, you know, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's fascinating to me that, that, well, no, it's not surprising to me that the Senator responded that way because I think a lot of Canadians would, but we are talking about colonialism, right? I mean, and, and I agree. So there's an interesting debate about the, the tactics of how you, engage with something like this and to me it's a question of saying okay look we need to tell the truth we need to be honest but there are different moments to do different work and yeah so i do think it's it's a potluck yeah but the fact that a senator in this day and age would react like that you know portrays something which is that we haven't even come close to grappling with that history not not at Parliament, and certainly then not on Main Street, right? And and that that work is going to be the work of people taking to the streets and calling attention to this. And I just keep I I can't help but come back and come back time and time again to the point that the fact that people are pulling down statues that's what it takes to do this. It looks like because it wasn't because it has pushed the conversation so much further. One thing I've been surprised with, and I've given a lot of talks over the last few years. And often I'll give a talk, especially here in Saskatchewan, we've got Indigenous people are a very large minority in, in Saskatchewan. So often I'll speak to a, uh, you know, kind of a mixed crowd. And when I'm giving my talk, as intense as it is, the Indigenous people are not like, yeah, we know, that's our story. The other half of the audience is often shocked. Like I can tell their, you know, their eyes are not necessarily bulging out, but like 
they are truly shocked. They have not heard this story where the indigenous people, this is part of their family history, right? So um, again, it's our experience that, that shapes our knowledge, that shapes our approach to these things. And again, you know, sort of middle-aged uh, white citizens here in Saskatchewan or elsewhere in Canada just haven't heard this. So I agree with you about, you know, like the, the social change coming from, from the, uh, from the statue folks, but also, uh, educators are putting my content and, and very similar content into classrooms. I can't tell you how I've probably spoken to 50 classes hmm. of high school students or middle school students. So young people are getting, uh, I guess a more fulsome, if you want to think about it that way, you know, like a, a more complex picture of uh, of their history, and we have mandatory Indigenous Studies training here in Saskatchewan. Uh, the young people ha- are being trained in a very different way than their parents. And you know, the, the the provincial government mandated it. The school boards association are on it. Uh, it does come down to uh, individual principals and teachers what how far they want to go. But um, yeah, there's a lot of activist teachers out there, or at least in my experience here in Saskatchewan. I guess as a thought experiment for those listening, if we were to clear every monument and every statue and every plaque out today and say, okay, let's start from scratch and decide who goes in and who goes out, the result would look very different, right? And I and I wonder to what extent a lot of this is just path dependence. So, well, we, that's, that's what we've done and that's mm-hmm. what our ancestors decided to do. And that, to me, that's not a good reason. You know, because you talk about the fact that people are, are learning, they're changing their minds. The fact that you did 50 school talks talking about this stuff today, would, would that have happened 30, 40 years ago? And yet, you know, I, it, to me, it seems like, well, that's the way we've done it. It's not a good, a good reason to continue to do it that way. And, and I, you know, I guarantee if we were to restart, we wouldn't do it the same way. Right. Well, and so <laughs> I wonder to, to what extent then we ought to be saying like, look, it's a conscious choice to leave these things up. And we need reasons for it rather than saying, oh, well, it's just, that's just the way it was because it's always been there. Yeah. And uh, I remember a couple of years ago, somebody asked me, so would there be a panel set up to talk about these monuments? Uh, from my perspective, that would end up being like the Politburo or something like that. Oh, yeah. That. No, that, I mean, it, yeah, we, we, this is the horse sign by committee camel stuff, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. So I guess one of the things or one of the things that I've learned is, okay, people have a problem. And this is a story of Dr. Cindy Blackstock. You, you, you must, yes, I'm sure our listeners have heard of, of Cindy Blackstock. She, and with all of her work, she sort of rediscovered Dr. Peter Henderson Bryce, who was a whistleblower. He was a physician that worked uh, for the Department of Indian Affairs. And had his recommendations been, been uh, implemented in the early 1900s, we probably wouldn't have a legacy of residential schools today. Like that's how important his his findings were in the early 20th century. Of course, he was ignored and was ousted from the civil service and, and a bunch of other things. But he's considered to be a hero uh, in these days. And Dr. Blackstock is one of the people that, that uh, really has been at the forefront of, of recognizing it. And a few years ago, she was, maybe four or five years ago, she was taking flowers to his grave. He's buried in, I think it's the Beechwood Cemetery in, in Ottawa. Like it's a middle-class cemetery. And and uh, Dr. Bryce's grave, like he was a physician, upper middle class, like I'm sure it wasn't, you know, in the swampy area. But as she was going to visit that grave, she walked by 
the, the monument to Duncan Campbell Scott, the person who was responsible for ousting Dr. Bryce Jeez. and who oversaw the management of the residential school system at its worst for probably 30 years, right? And Duncan Campbell Scott um, was, a, was a highly renowned poet of the Victorian era, okay? So his monument wasn't to his work as a bureaucrat overseeing the residential school system. It was for his work in literature, in Canadian literature. So, you know, <laughs> there's a right. dilemma for you, right? So I'm sure Dr. Blackstock went and had a, you know, spiritual conversation with, with Dr. Bryce, but she ended up speaking to the, the, uh, the folks at the cemetery. And it turns out Duncan Campbell Scott doesn't have any descendants. So there was no family to speak to. And what she ended up doing was, in a very wise way, was she worked out, I don't know how, she, you know, like what the nuts and bolts of this were, but she worked out a way to put a new plaque without covering up the old plaque, to put a new plaque on Duncan Campbell Scott's memorial. And what that plaque is, is like while he was renowned as a, you know, Victorian Canadian poet, he also oversaw residential school system. And the words from the TRC, cultural genocide, are on that plaque. So the, the monument itself is not taken down, but it's been reinterpreted. So that might be a way to go. Like, you know, not take it down, just put, put something on, on the side. Or like I said, have not necessarily a counter monument, but you know, I told you that story about the, the residential school uh, uh, memorial that hasn't been built in Regina. That might be something to have a counterpoint. That, that's interesting to me because, I mean, I think the, the, I mean, we've got to, if we're being honest, we've got to plainly admit that there are going to be multiple facets to people. I mean, uh, you know, Johnny McDonald helped sew the country together. Yep. Kind of stapled it together with the railroad. I mean, I, th- that's undeniable. Also complicit. But yeah, the railroad, yeah, the, I was just going to say, the railroad was the death knell of freedom for Indigenous people. Right. And, and right, so even, even, even that, I mean, even one of those sort of founding moments of the country was, a, it was plainly colonial and violent, right? And I mean, it's, it, if we're, I think we're ready to grapple with that now in a way that we haven't, not all of us, obviously, yeah. but we're more ready to grapple with that in the, that context and that, that nuance than ever. And, and to me, Maybe, maybe that is one of the way forward, but I think, you know, when we decide how to do it, one of the things we ought to, to avoid replicating is, is sort of monolingual conversations. Or sort of, oh, you know, yeah, we, for sure. And I think part of the problem is a lot of what's up and venerated around from Parliament Hill to Victoria is the fact that these were decided largely by white men. Mm-hmm. Privileged, yeah, right. Sure. And the, the next conversation has to be about, okay, how do we collectively decide what, what this is going to look like going forward, especially with the input and direction of those who have been historically marginalized? Well, yeah, and I got another layer of uh, complication, if you will. I was in Hamilton uh, last summer giving a talk. Actually, it was, the talk was called Statue Wars. And there's a memorial to McDonald that was built three years after his death. It was 1896. So there's a statue in a park. Okay, I actually think that that statue has, even though it's the same representation of the McDonald who was in Victoria Park, because the McDonald statue here in Regina was built in 1967 as a, as a centennial mm. project. Okay. So the 1896 memorial was a genuine 
show of grief for the prime minister who just died. Whether or not the people knew about, you know, all the negative stuff, to me is almost irrelevant. The 1967 statue is a representation of of that image a hundred years later. You know what I mean? Like uh, right. it's kind of like the, you know, uh, Confederate statues didn't go up in 1866. They went up right. in the 1920s to remind people of their, you know, of of that social situation uh, of segregation and all that other stuff. So you could have the same image, and I think there's a different message even from the same image. Like, man, it's getting complicated. Well, and, and it's it's worth noting that, I mean, you bring up the, the case of the 1920s in the United States. I mean, this this is a deliberate attempt to maintain white supremacy, right? I mean, this is, I think, a little bit of what uh, Ken Burns is getting at when he talks about how, you know, these things are trying to celebrate a false narrative. But I think more than that, they're also meant to prop up racism and what is ultimately white supremacy. And I think there's, there's a big debate about white supremacy and what it means, but I think what often gets lost is the fact that a white supremacist system entrenches power relations that benefit white folks at the, mm-hmm. at the expense of everyone else. And that is bound up in monumental history. And, and, and again, I, the fact that it, it strikes me as such a canard that it's just ends up being you know, dismissed as, oh, you're just trying to rewrite history. And, and I just, I, you know, I want to come back and close on this point, this question of rewriting history. To me, there's nothing about this that's rewriting history. I, I don't, I'm curious, what would rewriting history look like? You know, if we, if we took opponent, statue opponents at face value and said, okay, well, we're worried about rewriting history, what would that even be? I mean, with lying, would it be, you know, well, here's an censoring example. textbooks? Like, I, I don't understand. Yeah, well, I mean, think about think about the Soviet era, and I'm no expert in, in the Soviet era, though I did start grad school at the end of the Soviet era, but those textbooks in the Soviet Union rewrote history in the sense that, that it was propaganda history. Right, literally right? rewritten. <laughs> that was rewritten history. So I, I honestly don't think that's what we're doing. What, we're tr- what we as historians are trying to do, and hopefully some of us are, are doing this, is trying to add more, rather than, like we're rewriting it in the sense that we're making it more sophisticated or, or more complex or more inclusive, rather than, uh, than more simple and more reductionist. Because John A. MacDonald, father of Canada, you know, whatever year, 1814 to 1891 or 93, that's not history. Right. But it is reductionist. That's biography, right? Like yeah. that, that is, that is yeah. bottle cap facts. I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah, and that's, but you know, well, just talking about, you know, sort of that, uh, that white privilege in, this has happened to me five times and I, I should know this. I'm in my late fifties. Like I, there were lessons I, I've learned only in the last few years, but there was, uh, and this is, like I said, has happened to me more than once, five or six times. I've had First Nations people after a talk, I'm signing a book, I'm glad handing people, I'm kind of joking. And they've said, thank you for writing this book. Okay? And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I did my best with the skills I have, kind of chuckling. And then the next sentence was, thank you for being white and writing this book. So the first time, like, I was like, I was at, literally at a loss for words. I didn't know how to reply to that. Like, I was, you know, the, the mouse was spinning the wheel in my brain. And the person said, because if we wrote it, they would just write it off that we were complaining. 
So me having the privilege of have as a white middle-class male, having the, you know, like the, the privilege, having that voice, I got a responsibility to try to, um, to live up to that, you know, like to, 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 to use that, that voice, I don't know, like, you know, to, to, to push the ball forward, I guess. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, that strikes me as just as, as sort of you indicate another indication that the, the nature of privilege, the nature of, of what critical scholars and others, including myself, will call white supremacy. Yeah. Is that we've created a situation in which that sort of thing matters. Right. And, and, you know, uh, I cannot imagine being in a position where I said, I can't write my own history because it would just be dismissed if I wrote it. I need someone else to write my history. Well, that's, I mean, to me, that is the ultimate travesty uh, when it comes to the, the telling of these stories is that it's, it's so deeply screwed yeah. up that these people can't, these folks can't write their own history. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's a sign of how deep, like, let's call it what it is, how deep the racism goes. Right. But also strikes me that that's changing too. I mean, cause I, I, yeah. I mean, I think, I'm, I'm thinking of someone like Harold Johnston, uh, yeah. who, whose book I really enjoyed, and I was on a panel with him a little while ago, thinking that that that's that's just going to change. I mean, I look at people like or, or, or you know uh, Tanya Talaga, Sherry yeah. Dimaline, uh, Chelsea Vowell. That's just I I think that's we're we're seeing the beginning of the end of that. Thank thank yeah. God. I mean, and and I think we ought to be adjusting our understanding of history and our, our veneration of history accordingly, because it's changing. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And uh, as a member of the Canadian Historical Association, I've said this you know, kind of in public, some of the most exciting, um, groundbreaking work is in Indigenous history by Indigenous historians, giving, giving their perspective and adding like an Indigenous methodology to, uh, to a historical perspective. It's awesome. Yeah, I think well, and to me that's that's as good a point as any to to end it because sadly we have we have come to time. But I, I, that was sprawling, and I'm glad it was because that's that's what I was hoping for. And and so thank you so much for oh, for coming on today and talking to me about this. My joke is, don't get me started. I, <laughs> yeah. Well, I found that given the the magic of of editing technology, we can. We can meander and then when it's all said and done, it sounds coherent. But thanks once more uh, to you and to everyone listening. Uh, I, I would I would challenge you as you walk through the world to have a look around and uh, and, and get a sense of, of maybe seeing history with new eyes, see who it is we venerate and, and who it is that we don't. So thanks again for listening and we'll see you in a couple of weeks.